been uh, in the book of James. Um, when I'm uh, uh, teaching, we've been going through the book of James since last fall, and uh, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of James, but I'm finding that the more I dig into the book of James, the tougher and tougher it is, and the tougher it is uh, personally, and the more convicting it is as I go through the book of James. Uh, there's no room in the book of James to hide, and there's no room in the book of James to feel good about my fleshliness, that's for sure. Uh, when we started in the book of James, the beginning, we, we, we know that the book of James is, we started this in fall, so it's been a little while, so maybe I'll hit a couple little highlights. Um, so first James, this is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote this book, and he started off in chapter one, and he talked about uh, how we can have joy as we go through trials and tribulations. And he talks about being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Chapter two, he talked to us about not having partiality uh, within the body of Christ, uh, and particularly, he spoke very muchly on the wealth thing. And then last time, we, we hit a very difficult um, passage in a way when we talked about that faith without works is dead. And we talked about how we are declared righteous and we're to demonstrate the righteousness that has been imparted to us. That is looking at the same goalpost as Pauline theology, uh, the words that we see from Paul that we're declared just by faith in Jesus Christ. And James tells us that as a result of the free gift that God has given us, we are to demonstrate that faith and that salvation. So now we come to James chapter three. And I don't know about you, but uh, if, you've, if you cruise and peruse through this real quick, it's gonna smack you, because I know it smacked me real good this week. So let, let's just bow our heads a second, and then we'll try to dive into James chapter three. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Your, your word is living, it's active, and it's a sharper than a double-edged sword. And your, wor your word also tells us that it always bears the fruit that you have appointed for it, Lord, like, like the rain and the dew on the earth, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord. And this morning, I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts to hear for what you have to say. Uh, I pray that you would soften us, Lord, that you would conform us, transform us more into your likeness, that we would be more Christ-like. Uh, we ask for your help, Lord. We pray that you pour out your spirit upon uh, us as your people and upon your word this morning in Jesus name. Amen You know what? It's not a very long chapter. I thought maybe we'd start out just by reading the chapter in its entirety uh, So you have a little bit of a, a reminder of the context as we go from bit to bit So James chapter 3 Not many of you should become teachers my brothers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by very, a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. 
and set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And he changes gears slightly. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I love the final verse of this chapter. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Uh, is sown by those who make peace. Just reading that without even talking about it has a way of smacking us, doesn't it? For those of us who are uh, in leadership and in the position of teaching and serving in the church, the first line hits us pretty hard too. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. You know, it's that warning to teachers. You know, we always think that the teaching is a high calling, and it is. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul says to his, to his protege, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It is a good thing. Later on in the second book to, uh, letter to Timothy, he says, do your best to present yourselves as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's a heaviness, there's a weight, there's a seriousness to teaching God's word. It's an immense privilege with an immense weight on one's shoulders. Because, you know, as we speak and we share God's word, as you do around, we can, we can, we can make errors potentially. Jesus said in, in Luke 12, everyone too much has been given, much will be required. From him who, much, who has entrusted much, they will demand more. And later on in Matthew 18, he says, but for whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have great millstones fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Harsh words from Jesus. Heavy words. It's a noble task, but it's a dangerous calling. It's a dangerous thing to be doing. Makes me tremble in my boots a little bit. You know, we've in, as you cruise through Scripture, we see examples of, of, of great teachers, great prophets. 
and we want to accurately represent God's word. We want to accurately represent Jesus to his people and to the greater public who don't know Jesus. We want to accurately present Jesus. If we were to cruise back into the Old Testament and we were to look at Moses, the great leader that we've just been following through Exodus, and, and, and we know the story well what happened. They needed water. Moses went to the Lord on behalf of the people, and the Lord said, strike the rock, and it'll bring forth water. This is the first time. And Moses did that. He obeyed the Lord, and he struck the rock, and water came forth, and the people had water. But we know what happened the second time that they came to the spot where water came from the rock. Is Moses was commanded by the Lord to speak to the rock. Later on in the New Testament, it tells us that that rock is a picture of Jesus Christ. And when he was bruised and beaten for our transgressions was the image of hitting the rock the first time. And the second time he was to speak to the rock that all who are hungry and thirsty can come to Jesus and be healed and have water flow. He misrepresented. He was essentially uh, demonstrating hitting Jesus again, he has already paid that once on the cross his blood was shed for the complete remission of our sins. And now we need simply to ask to be forgiven. He misrepresented Jesus. You know, there was results. Moses never actually entered the physical promised land of Canaan. He never crossed the Jordan River. It wasn't a salvation issue for Moses because we know that on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus went up there, he met with Moses and Elijah. We're gonna, we're gonna walk in heaven with Moses. But there's consequences for misrepresenting Jesus. It's a heavy task and we use a very dangerous tool in our ministry. We use our tongues. Our goal here, Matt and I, leadership of this church is to accurately represent Jesus, is to accurately teach the scriptures simply. I love what, what Nehemiah, what happened in Nehemiah when Ezra found the book of the law and read it before the people. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, he was on a little platform, and he opened it and all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, and lifted up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then there's a whole list of guys here that I can't pronounce any of their names, but there's about ten of them, and they were helpers. Reminds me of our home group leaders and people who serve in ministry. So all these guys, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And then it says in verse 8 that they read from the book of the law clearly. And the word clearly, if you're in your Bible, there'll be a footnote that says, with interpretation or paragraph by paragraph, they gave, uh, <clears throat> so the, they, from the book of the law, they read clearly with interpretation and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And when the people heard the words of the law, they wept. Our goal is to teach the word of God simply. But, you know, I have a request from you as God's people. James is clear this is a dangerous calling. This is a dangerous thing to be doing. I'm using a dangerous tool this morning. 
I ask for your prayers for those who teach, for those who are in leadership. We can't do this on our own. Only by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit can we accomplish anything. We covet your prayers for help to accurately represent Jesus Christ to you, God's people, and the people around. So teachers, it's a dangerous calling. It doesn't say not to, it's also a noble calling, but it's a dangerous calling. Back to verse two, for we all stumble in many ways, for if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. James is including himself as this teacher, as this letter writer, that he stumbles. We all stumble. Romans says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us. In fact, he says that if we were able to control our tongue, we would be brought into perfection or maturity or completeness. We'd be able to control all the rest of our body. You know, Jesus said that from the overflow of the heart, the tongue speaks. And when I think about this passage of scripture and the tongue, it reminds me and scares me a little bit of the division that can be in my heart. You know, so often the mouth is the primary route to sin in my life. I speak something minor, and that's the first step before action goes forth. You know, how often have you said something, you go, I can't believe I said that. I can go back in this last week in my work, particularly in my workplace, and go, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that about so-and-so. But the reality is, is that my tongue and in fact, my thoughts that I'm realizing about my tongue is a temperature gauge of my heart. And it kind of scares me. You know, our tongue, it betrays who we are, the reality of who we are. I, I read this week, J. Vernon McGee said it like this. He said, remember the maid who said to Simon Peter, thy speech betrayeth you? In Matthew 26, he could not deny he was from Galilee. Your speech tells who you are. Your tongue gives you away. It tells where you came from. It tells whether you're ignorant or educated, cultured or crude, whether you're clean or unclean, whether vulgar or refined, whether you're a believer or a blasphemer, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether guilty or not guilty. My friend, I am of the opinion that if you had a tape-recorded message of everything you said this past month, you would not want to hear it. He says, so let's put the acid test to our tongues and our hearts. Other places in scriptures it says that our, our hearts are to be circumcised or set apart before God. Laid bare before him. I need my heart to be retouched by the Lord each and every day. I want to set my course to walk in the light as when we were in 1 John we were talking about walking in the light. I want to have fellowship with him and with one another. James carries on and he, he, he in verses uh, three through five, five, five and six, he gives three distinct examples about the power of this little muscle. Let's read it. We've, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot, or if you read the King James, withsoever the governor listeth. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James is reminding us about actually how strong and the power of this little thing in our mouths is and the overflow of our heart. The first one is a horse. Betty, you have horses, don't you? Big ones. They're strong animals. They can do a lot of good. They can do a lot of work. At one point, I worked at a resort, and we had horses, and we did trail rides and pulled wagons and sometimes pulled logs out of the bush with these big animals. You put a bit in a trained horse's mouth, and you put the reins in the hands of someone who is not fearful of the animal, but has a strong, firm, controlling hand on the animal, and a great amount of work is done, very controlled, and much good happens. But there's something else. I've been on a horse where I was fearful, and the animal sensed that I was fearful. You know what? That horse did not respond to my gentle tugs on the reins. If anything, it protested against because they weren't gentle. They were coarse, and they were hard, and the horse didn't know what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing, and it felt out of control. So our tongues can be like that. They can do great good or be out of control. The second analogy that, that James gives us is the rudder on a ship. You know, it's, it's, you know, Jerry and Rini came from over on a ship this morning. The Queen of Surrey has a rudder on it. And the idea is, is that this rudder on this great ship controls the direction or the course that it's on. When it's in the, 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 the helm wheel is in the hands of an experienced helmsman that's alert, it avoids danger and sails a course and does much good. We see the Queen of Surrey go back and forth many times every day without incident. What happens when the helmsman is not alert and on paying attention? You remember the Queen of the North? The helmsman not at the wheel. We won't talk about what they were doing, but not at the wheel. But the reality is, is the, the rudder stayed, but the control for the rudder was gone. And they sailed straight into the rocks, into the island, to much material loss and even the loss of life. A lack of control at the helm imminent danger. It's just like the, those migrant ships uh, in the Mediterranean, right? You know, uh, about a month ago was in the news, the ship headed for the shores of Italy. The, they set the autopilot to point straight at the shores, and then the crew jumped off the ship with, I don't know, 700 people on it, and they let it go. It was on a course, and a course for destruction, without someone at the helm. The third analogy is fire. We all know fire well. A controlled fire or a small spark does much good. How many of us cook our food over a gas stove or warm our homes with gas or wood? Every one of you that drove here today, you may not have thought of it, but your vehicle moved with fire. There's fire in every cylinder. When we say it's fire in all cylinders, there's an explosion, there's fire. It's much good work is done. 
but we also know what happens when a spark goes out of control into tinder dry brush or campfires left unattended. What happens every year in California and every year in Australia, these great wildfires, much loss, much damage, carnage in its wake. There's something very interesting about fire and forest fire. As it develops its own wind, did you know that? It fans its own flame. You get a large fire going, you have this mass of hot air going up and it pulls like a venturi and it pulls in the cold air and creates its own wind on top of any other wind. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's why a fire is hard to control. The larger it gets, the more out of control it becomes. Our tongues are like that, are they not? I say a word and I can't take it back. And next thing I know is it's snowballed. But my tongue can also do great things. I can glorify the Lord with my tongue, but I can also cut people down who are made in his image. Our tongues are powerful tools, a tool in the toolbox. Verse six says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting the entire, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. <clears throat> James doesn't hold back, does he? He says our tongue is like that out-of-control forest fire, creating its own wind. A world of unrighteousness, a world or a realm or sphere, all encompassing of iniquity. So encompassing that it actually uses that word Gehenna of hell, that's set on fire by hell. It's a restless evil, it can't be shut off. So often I wish that I had bit my tongue, but the word still came out. One guy I was listening to this week, Alistair Begg, he said, any kind of evil finds an ally in the tongue. I thought, oh, is that not true? He reminds us that, that mankind, we have, you know, we have actually fulfilled what God has called us to do in the garden very, very well. We have subdued much of the world, have we not? In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. People have been fruitful and multiplied from Adam and Eve substantially. We have subdued it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. You know, we've tamed the land. We move across land and sea with ease. We fly, we drive. We, could, we, we take animals and put bits in their mouths and we train them to do a lot of work. Sometimes we do it just for our enjoyment. Our little puppy dog, we tell our, most our dog's not the best trained, but um, I tell our dog to sit and most of the time it sits and lay and lay. There's no real purpose to that. There actually isn't a grand purpose to having a dog in my home except for our pleasure. We've trained animals for our pleasure. We've also trained them to do work, seeing eye dogs and drug sniffing dogs. We've trained parrots to speak. I don't get it, but we've trained parrots to speak. 
Dangerous animals have been tamed for our enjoyment at the circus and the zoo. But we cannot tame the tongue. It says no human being can tame the tongue. It can't be trained. It can't be trained by, by behavior modification. It just can't be tamed. It's set in, in our bodies. It's fixed. In fact, it came in its own cage. <laughs> Not real good at keeping the cage closed. Thinking about this, I, I like how Weir, Weersby um, summarized this a little bit. He said, James reminds us that animals can be tamed, and for that matter, fire can be tamed. When you tame an animal, you get a worker instead of a destroyer. When you control fire, you generate power. But the tongue cannot be tamed by man, but it can be tamed by God. Your, your tongue need not be set on fire by hell. Like the apostles at Pentecost, it can be set on fire from heaven. If God lights the fire and controls it, the tongue can be a mighty tool for the winning of the lost and the building up of the church. The important thing, of course, is the heart. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. If the heart is filled with hatred, Satan will light the fire. But the heart, if the heart is filled with love, God will light the fire. I love that. I want my tongue to be lit on fire by God. But all too often, I still carry out, as he describes in verses 9 through 12, with it... We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James tells us that our tongues are actually contrary to nature. You know, a vine doesn't, doesn't bear forth fruit that needs to be grown on a tree. It doesn't work. We know that salt water and fresh water is described doesn't come out of the same thing, but somehow my mouth cuts down people I work with, people that I rub shoulders with who are made in the likeness of God or his creation, his poema. And I tear them down. And then I come here Sunday morning and sing the praises of God. Maybe speak about the goodness of God, his grace and his mercy poured out into you and me. Go to Wednesday night and, and at Koinonia and, and have a great discussion about the things of the Lord. Thursday morning, my mouth falls out of my tongue falls out of my mouth at work. It's a disparity, isn't it? You know, I can find myself getting really disheartened as I come through this part of the chapter because I'm I'm confronted with my inadequacies. I'm confronted with the reality of my flesh. I am confronted with the reality that often my heart is divided. Even though I am in Christ, often my one foot is still in this world and the other foot is with him and I'm torn. And my course ought to be set in the light, but sometimes I stumble in the shadows. I read this week that it's 
not, it's only when you're confronted with your inadequacies that we will be able to call upon God for all the adequacy that he provides. I thought that was awesome. You know, the waters of my tongue and the waters of your tongue, as they pour out some salt water and some fresh water or some bitter and some fresh water at the same time, I'm reminded of a time where there was bitter water that was turned to fresh water. You might remember in Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel, they were cruising through the desert and they needed water and they seen an oasis. In fact, there were 70 beautiful palm trees and they came there and they tried the water and it was bitter. Not good to be drank would cause sickness. And once again, Moses went before the Lord, and the Lord said, take that tree and throw it in the water, and the water was healed. The water became sweet. And there's, a, there's kind of a beautiful imagery of the cross of Jesus Christ where his blood was shed for us, where he heal, can heal the waters of our heart and the waters of our tongue and the waters of our mind. Because we will give account for what we speak. And we cannot tame our tongue on our own. Only our increased devotion and fellowship to Jesus Christ will we see a change in our tongue because it's a change of heart rather than an attempt to modify our behavior only. When we're out of fellowship, when I fall out of fellowship with Jesus Christ because of my sin or because of my ignorance or whatever, out of fear, I become like Simon Peter and, and as Jesus is on trial, what does he do? Three times he denies he even knows the man. Three times in the rooster crows. But there's a cool thing with the story of Simon Peter. Because as much as he spoke poorly and denied his Lord, Jesus restored him. In John 21, Peter is reinstated and Jesus says, feed my sheep. Go do what I've called you to do. Come back into fellowship with me. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles are in the upper room and they're waiting. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and the Holy Spirit comes down with tongues of fire and they speak in different tongues. The tongue is being used for the glory of God. They speak in different tongues and all around here in languages that are their own, their native tongue and they're blown away. And what does Peter do? He preaches and 3,000 are saved that day. There is hope for our divided hearts. There's hope for our tongues that sometimes bear salt and fresh water is that Jesus, only Jesus can heal our tongue. It's a beautiful picture of the work of Jesus Christ as he heals and restores. I want to... I want the words of my mouth, as the song says, the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart, may they bless your name, bless your name, Jesus, and the deeds of the day and the truth of my way speak of you, speak of you, Jesus. 
Lord, will you be my vision? Lord, will you be my guide? Be my hope, be my light and the way. I'll look not for riches nor praises on earth. Only you'll be the first. Jesus. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear in him have no lack. He gives us the provision to have a changed heart in the person of Jesus Christ. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, I love this, when the righteous cry for the help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He heals us. He can change us from being chameleons, you know, those little lizards that change their color depending on what crowd they're in, to holding the banner for Jesus Christ consistently. He can heal my heart. Show the colors of Christ rather than the colors of anger or the colors of gossip or the colors of deceit, or the colors of I'm this man on Sunday and I'm this man at home and I'm this man on Monday and I'm this man at the store. But a life consistent to Jesus Christ. And James shifts gears a little bit. Verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. Who is wise? You know, it's the world looks at wisdom fairly differently than God does. The world looks for intellect and skill and wit. Uh, maybe some good politicking. The ability to climb up the ladder but here James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works by meekness of wisdom. It reminds me much of that our faith is to be demonstrated by the good works. There's a difference between godly wisdom and just pure knowledge. Godly wisdom, God imparts a special discernment, the ability to apply knowledge both of things of the Lord and things of our, of our world. God gives us the ability to correctly apply knowledge. I think of, you know, you remember the story well of David and Goliath, right? There's David, the little guy. He comes down to the battlefield and everyone's fearful of Goliath and, and David says, I'll go and fight him. And somewhere's along, like, okay, okay, but here, we gotta put this armor on. We gotta put our best knowledge of warfare onto you. We're gonna put something that's ill-fitting, but it's our best that we think we have in our manly wisdom. And what does David say? He says, but your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there was a lion or a bear, 
that came after his sheep and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it from his mouth. I went after him and struck him. <coughs> oh, sorry. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard. Imagine that. He grabs the lion by the beard or the bear by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears for this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. He was walking in wisdom from the Lord that God had imparted a skill with a sling. He had imparted his spirit upon David and he applied the knowledge that God had given him in a godly way compared to putting on ill-fitting armor that was the best warfare technology, so to speak. You know, true wisdom is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that. We know that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise of the world, you know? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, f- the f- made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God to save us. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling brought to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God, God's foolishness, is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Sounds like us, isn't it? Pretty simple people. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring things that are, so that no human may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord only. It reminds me of the five solas. Sola, uh, sola de gloria, give glory to God. Glory is to God, not to mankind. He talks about the wisdom ought to be displayed in meekness. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is not weakness. We often put those two together, don't we? But weakness is power that's controlled by the word of God. Wisdom produces meekness and meekness increases wisdom. Then he goes on and has some descriptors, some more descriptors about godly wisdom and wisdom of the world. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Just look at those two lists side by side. Godly wisdom is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's reasonable, or yields to persuasion is another translation. Merciful, bears fruit, impartial, sincere, and earthly wisdom, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boastful. Remember we were just told only to boast in Jesus Christ. 
boast in the Lord. It's unspiritual, demonic, brings disorder and vile practice. I'm reminded of what happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall of man. Because the devil came and he used his tongue and he planted seeds of doubt in Eve, did he not? If you were to flip to Genesis chapter 3, you would see that the devil used some half-truths in a way to entice many of these things described as earthly wisdom in Eve. He said, did God say, the first thing he did is he laid seeds of doubt. And he said, you will surely not die. Another seed of doubt, putting doubt he laid a seed of doubt and he said, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, selfish ambition. He was tickling the senses. Selfish ambition and pride seems to be where a lot of earthly wisdom characteristics come from, are they not? Where we want to be self-elevated. I, I so often struggle with the, those kind of things that I want to be known, I want to do a good job, I want to, you know, a, excel. But is it for my glory or is it for God's glory? And that's the real difference, is it not? Because really, I want to be like the descriptors of godly wisdom. I want to be pure and holy, set apart from defilement. I want to be peaceable, which is directly linked to purity. I want to be able to say like Gideon said in Judges 6, that the Lord is peace. I know it, but I want to understand it. I want to be reasonable. I want to be, if I'm in disagreement, disagree without being disagreeable. I want to be merciful as the Father's been merciful to me. I want to bear fruit. It's not uncommon in scripture for us to be commanded to bear fruit, that our lives should have good fruit. Whether the fruit points to the root, the health in the root. I want to be impartial. I want to see people, I want to see the things of God through the lens of God, through the scriptures. Realize that we are all on an evil, even playing field. We all need his grace, we all need his touch. In this chapter, we all need a touch on the tongue. Verse 18 says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to be a peacemaker. I want my speech and my actions and my life to bring forth peace. And it says here that if we sow in peace, we will harvest in righteousness. The fruit will, we, when we sow in peace, the fruit of that tree, from that seed we plant and grows into a tree, bears forth fruit that resembles Jesus Christ's righteousness. Becomes more and more as he does the work of change in our life. Thankfully, I'm not who I once was, but I'm not yet who I will become. Jesus is working that on that but I want the fruit to look more and more like Jesus Christ as I step forth from day to day. I don't know about you guys, but this chapter challenges me in regards to my lips. I don't think it cannot for any of us. 
So the tongue is powerful, and it's a temperature gauge for the reality of my heart. I need to ask the Lord each and every day to come and soften my heart more. I need my devotion to him to be increased. I want to set my course. I don't want my course set on fire. I don't want my my maps burned up. I want my, my, set my course towards Jesus Christ. Come into better fellowship with him each day so that I can go from blasphemer to praising. And only Jesus can do that with the indwelling of his Holy Spirit as we press into him. As we use our, as our mouths, I ask you to keep teachers in prayer because it's a dangerous calling. And I ask that the Lord would give us more discernment to be more like him, to be peacemakers, rather than living in selfish ambition. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word, Lord. Some days it's easier than others. Um, Father, I pray that you would heal my heart and my tongue. Lord, I pray you'd help me to be a peacemaker, Lord. And uh, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it uh, is so applicable to our hearts and lives.